From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. And we didn't think we were going to be doing another one this week. We've had two about Brexit and its aftermath, and that's left us completely and utterly wrung out. But I work three doors along from Glen Rangwala. Uh, so we, used, we used to go around and everyone said what they had for breakfast, and that didn't yeah, work no, so well as chat chat. So now the chat chat is, you have read seven <laughs> volumes. Uh, it's not possible to read. He knows as much as anyone, probably, about what's in the Chilcot report, about some of the circumstances that led to Chilcot reporting at all. He has been studying, writing, visiting Iraq since the war. I saw you yesterday, yes. and you hadn't read any of it, and it's now today, less than 24 hours later. You cannot have read seven volumes. Or... I've, I've looked through the seven. I, to say I've read it is... He is well known as the person who, more or less single-handedly, exposed the dodgy dossier. Glenn is extremely well informed. I had to remind myself this morning about the difference between the dodgy dossier and the September dossier. The September dossier was the one which had the 45 minutes to destruction claim or the thing that was dressed up as that. The dodgy dossier was in February, a month before the war itself. And what Glenn discovered when he read it was that he'd read it somewhere before. And where he'd read it before was in the work of a PhD student and that that work had been plagiarised in the dossier. And if Glenn hadn't, I don't know, Glenn, if you hadn't read it, would anyone else have spotted it? I'm sure they would have done. I was just quick off the mark. You were quick off the mark. This is slightly different from what we've been talking about in previous weeks. We'll touch at the end on where this fits into contemporary British politics, because it's this really weird interlude. It's almost like everyone has taken 24 hours out of the madness in order to reflect on madness that happened more than a decade ago. And yet, the two things intersect. And we'll come on to Jeremy Corbyn maybe at the end. I mean, this is an extremely important document about some extremely important issues, and they cut right through the travails of the Labour Party in 2016. I haven't read the Chilcot Report, Glenn has. I have read Tony Blair's response to the Chilcot Report, which is a lot shorter, although it was quite long. And again, when you see the coverage yesterday, it was quite quickly pivoted from the report itself, what's in it, people very quickly trying to pull out stuff that might be surprising or unexpected to the drama of Blair's statement, which was, in its way, extraordinarily dramatic. A lot of the press coverage this morning has been about, was he acting? Was he lying? Was he the usual Blair psychodrama? Is he mad? I've read at least two pieces today by people who said, I said he was mad in 2003, and now I know I'm right. So, Glenn, I'm going to start by asking you, have you been surprised by anything that you have read in the Chilcot Report to date? Yeah, so I, I approached the Chilcot, Chilcot report unsure of what its actual purpose would be, what it was trying to set out to do. And there were various different possibilities for what it could be doing. One was to look at the role of individuals. It could be looking at the role of Blair and Straw and Hoon, uh, Sawyers and Scarlet. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't in any detailed way look at the role of specific individuals within the British government. Of course they're mentioned, of course there is quite a bit about what they've said and done, but there are no overarching evaluations of whether individuals behaved properly or improperly. And that in itself is 
goes against some of the pre-press coverage we were given what sounded like leaks that Dear Love was going to get it or that Jack Straw was going to get it and they they haven't. They they haven't and the headlines today are all about Blair Uh, but actually in the report there is very little of a concerted attempt to evaluate what role particular individuals had in an an overarching way so uh, there isn't sort of explicit criticism Um, that's reported in the in the assessments made in the report of those individuals activities of course there there is a lot there that one can use to make an argument about the role of particular individuals but that's not their purpose what i thought would be the point of the report would be a more procedural angle looking at the role of institutions looking at the role of the ways in which processes are set up the more policy-led angle on what the expectation was for the report to consist of And I'm surprised at how little there is actually in the way of proposing technical fixes. You look through the report looking for what what they're saying we should be doing differently in policy terms, how reporting procedures from ambassadors should change, how institutions should be redesigned differently, how military procurement should should be done in particular ways. And there's almost none of that in the report. Of course, one can draw things out that will lead to technical policy proposals but that's not again where the report is going in its major account and that in itself is surprising because you've read it I haven't so I've just read the press coverage and the press coverage implies that that's what it is in a a way it's a kind of lessons learned procedural report about institutions particularly things like cabinet government lines of responsibility and accountability lines of reporting so actually the report itself you're saying doesn't do that. So that's what one expects from these sorts of reports. And that's that's the historical experience we have with reports on policy failings or policy mistakes, that one comes to a report that goes over what went wrong and proposing technical fixes to prevent that happening again in future. And of course, as I say, there is some of that, but that's not actually its overarching purpose, as I understand it. So what the hell is in it then? How do they fill up the so let me, volumes? Let, let, let me give you just one very short quote. I won't quote very much from the report, but this is the very last sentence of the whole discussion. It's the end of volume six of the very last se- um, sentence on the entirety of everything that's happened before 2003, before the invasion. The sentence is this. It's, Influence should not be set as an objective in itself, the exercise of influence is a means to an end. That's the last sentence of everything up to the invasion. Now, that sounds rather gnomic. It sounds... It yeah, sounds I'm like... struggling to process it even as you read it out to me. What, is um, it, what does that mean? Um, OK, so what it looks like, it, it looks like it's an abstract finding. It looks like it's a statement that has a rather general application. I mean, it, to be honest, could, it sounds like the conclusion of a sort of Oxbridge Absolutely. exam paper. Put, put put quote marks around it, add the word discuss at the end, and there you have a question for our second year undergraduates. But it's actually a very striking point. The way in which it's built up is in the discussion of the way in which the British government up to 2003 was debating not what its objective was in Iraq, what the goal was in Iraq, but it was about increasing British influence on the international stage. And the discussion that's going around between the Prime Minister and his advisers is oriented around this as their understanding of what the purpose of foreign policy is. And it's not just about Blair, it's not just about Straw Rule, the intelligence services, it's a more widespread finding of the conception of the purpose of foreign policy. And that 
is what is being criticised at the end of this discussion in the report up to 2003. And one of the things that's been reported in the papers today is that this is a criticism of a misjudgment about the extent of British influence on American policy. And obviously one of the big, and we'll come on to a few other counterfactuals in a minute, but one of the big counterfactual questions with the Iraq war is most people assume if we hadn't joined in, it would have happened anyway. So what difference does us playing a part or not playing a part in this war make to the war itself? Yes. So is this about that? It's about, in, in, in a sense, a collective conceit on the part of, uh, of part of politicians in the UK, not just Mr Blair, but others too, that by having a role, by staying closely involved, by offering support at various stages, British influence would be increased. And it's firstly a critique in that sense of that link between having an involvement and having influence. But then secondly, that objective of having influence as your end point of your thinking. The idea that by staying closely involved, this influence would be a good in itself for British policy without really thinking about what the influence then entails. So do you think that that conceit still exists? Because, I mean, what's really interesting about that is that I don't want to make this much about Brexit if at all, but after all, one of the central questions that we've just been going through in British politics relates to Britain's influence outside the European Union relative to inside the European Union. And a lot of it also seems somewhat conceited. There's all that argument about punching above our weight. And as one of our colleagues who's a boxer has pointed out, boxers never want to punch above their weight because if you punch above your weight, you get knocked out. (laughs) You want to punch your weight. So is the implication of this that actually that conceit wasn't punctured by this war and it needs reinforcing the extent to which we are still living in this slightly deluded world. So it's difficult not to read the report with not just Brexit in mind but the more general discussion about British foreign policy over the past decade uh, in mind and and one can't help but think that's there that they're trying to make an analysis of not just the 18 months in the lead up to the invasion and not just Mr Blair's own conception of what foreign policy is but a way in which Britain has over a longer period of time thought about its role in the world set itself goals which are goals that are oriented around increasing influence increasing our say in world affairs without really ever questioning seriously what the purpose of that is and that's why I think the report is structured in a way that in some ways downplays the personal involvement of individual leaders, downplays ideas that this is all just about sorting out institutions, but ends the major section of the report, both the section about the pre-2003 period and the post-invasion period, with these more general, more abstract conclusions. Conclusions which I think they hope will be read and thought about by those who do think big ideas about foreign policy, who don't just look for the next crisis and and what should be done in that situation, but have a longer-term understanding of what British foreign policy can and should be. Now, whether those people actually exist who do think in that way is an open question, whether there are people out there still who think about British strategy in the world um, as a whole rather than just thinking about one issue in isolation. For that reason, the timing is really opposite then, because obviously Chilcot didn't know when this was drafted that it would be coming out within a couple of weeks of the British people having decided they wish to leave the European Union. But the fact that it has come out at this moment, I mean, so who knows where these people are who think these things, but the assumption has to be that those people are thinking them more acutely at the moment than they have for a while, because there is a real question to be asked about what Britain's role is as an independent state outside of the EU 
in a geopolitical context. Very much so. And one thing that Chilcott draws attention to throughout, it's never quite explicit, but it's there throughout, is the extent to which questions are asked only about the next immediate period, the next issue that comes up in this whole process. And that comes out in the way in which there is no clear decision about British involvement in Iraq at any point. And Chilcott brings this out, the way in which there isn't a moment at which people sit down and say, well, should we or shouldn't we? There are a series of incremental steps where people are only thinking ahead to that next step rather than to where the whole thing ends up leading. And well, let's talk about Blair. We'll, we'll, and I'm really struck. I've noticed this previous podcast when I talked to Chris Brook. You call him Mr. Blair. I call him Blair. I think let's keep it like that. We can have a balance. You're more polite than I am. His response in it, he said, which she has said quite a few times, that people have to understand what it means to be a politician and a political leader. In the world in which we move, the philosophy he's espousing is called decisionism. He actually says explicitly at his points, his number one job is to make decisions. But as you're suggesting, these are almost decisions in a vacuum. It's the decision for the sake of decision. But the report also raises these really complicated issues of timing. When is the moment in this drawn out process where real decisions can be made. And the thing that I was always struck by with the debate in Parliament that sanctioned the war, the vote that Blair won, and I think we have to assume that he could have resigned if that vote had gone the other way, so it wasn't a done deal. But he won it with a famously powerful speech. But one of the things that gave the speech, I think it's power in the chamber, was when he said, we're massed on the borders of this state. If we retreat now, we hand a victory to Saddam Hussein. But of course, it was a victory of his own would have been of his own creation. And I was struck at the time that part of Blair's political genius in this process was that he always said it's too early to make a decision. We have to let things play out. We have to explore the options until suddenly it was too late. And there was never a point where it seemed to be where we could actually sit down and say, do we want to do this? Don't decide, don't decide, don't decide. Now decide, oh, we have to do it because if we retreat now, we'll give Saddam a victory. So do you have a sense in that process, what would have been the points in that where we could have decided in a way that, as you say, would have had substance rather than just being about timing? Well, this is why it's difficult for the polemicist or the headline writer to really fasten in on one episode in this whole process, because there is a series of incremental steps taken through the 18 months leading up to war, where there were a series of small-scale decisions, decisions that don't necessarily mean anything in themselves, but which cumulatively lead to this situation where Blair can plausibly make the case that it is too late to retreat, which again he did yesterday in his in his speech. There is the decision taken, decision is almost too strong a term, but the, the belief that is articulated in early 2002 that um, the Middle East would be better without the rule of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. That then seeks into a perspective that the only way to remove Saddam Hussein from power is through military occupation and invasion in early 2002. That then leads into the process that the British should have a role within this process if they are to retain a, a role in helping steer Iraq afterwards. This then leads into a decision that military forces committed by the UK should have a role in this. So there is there is a series of small-scale um, decisions taken over this period in which there is no single commitment, as it were, to use this military force, but is driven by a sense that they should be constantly keeping up with events as they're developing, acting accordingly, and participating in broader international processes that are leading towards the the heightening of of tension in in the region. So in a way, each decision sets the conditions for the next decision. And as you say, decision is often too strong a word because of the way these things are 
opinions formed collectively in certain settings which allow people to, to conclude that a point of view has been arrived at. But the set-piece decision-making is really absent in this. And some of, them, some of the decisions, if one wants to call them that, that are taken are for the most banal of reasons. So one example is the decision to commit three combat brigades to the force that's stationed in Kuwait, a decision which occurs in late 2002 that there should be three um, of these combat brigades. The only reason why it's three, Chilcot reports, is that the British committed three to the 1991 Gulf War in the ousting of Iraq's forces from Kuwait. It was three then, and therefore anything fewer than three now would look, look like we're, 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 we're pulling back our military endeavour. We're, we're less committed, as it were. And thereby our diminishing military. our influence, which, exactly, exactly. as we know now, that's a meaningless judgment with hindsight, but at the time that was how they were thinking. Exactly. That, and so there was no idea about what two of these three brigades would even do until March 2003, until the eve of the invasion. They don't even have a military role. They're just there because three is seen as a, as a proper number for the scale of British military commitment. So these are fairly banal reasons why there is this significant force in place. But the consequence of that is that Britain is left in charge of four southern provinces in Iraq after 2003 because they've got the proportionate size of force in place. So they're ruling the four southern provinces of Iraq after after 2003 for a reason that has nothing to do with military need or military, or military strategy, but is to do with the British trying to portray themselves as an important player and a continuing having a continuing role in military efforts um, compared quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The past. One of the things that, again, in the press coverage has been highlighted is the question of the role of experts, expertise, which again is something that's been discussed in other contexts in Britain in, in recent weeks. Again, it strikes me that there are different ways of reading this. I mean, there are experts like you, to take an example, people who, who knew about the region, knew about some of the risks. And, and I think there is a sense, there was a sense then, there's a sense now, that Blair and the people around him I don't think that they were deaf to those kinds of concerns, detailed local knowledge concerns, but there certainly was a sense that they were, they didn't want to overcomplicate what they were doing, and they had a fear that if they got drawn into the quagmire of listening to people like you, they would lose their clarity of vision. But the, so there is a question about were there points in the process where people who had a clearer understanding of what the situation was like on the ground should have been listened to more. And then there's another kind of expertise, which is the people who sort of know about politics and how it can go wrong. People who understand the limitations of these kinds of policymaking processes. And those people were also, in a sense, excluded. I mean, you could call the cabinet such a group. Mm -hmm. Smaller and smaller groups of people bypass the cabinet. Because if you open up the discussion, it's not that anyone in the cabinet would say, with my detailed knowledge of Iraq, dot, dot, dot. But they might say, with my detailed knowledge of how politicians screw up, 
dot, dot, dot. Another such body is Parliament, and Parliament was brought in for the decisive vote relatively late in the day. Yesterday, um, I saw Ken Clark respond in the Commons, and he made the case that one of the lessons from this is that Parliament should always be allowed to play a bigger role in these decisions. And David Cameron rejected that. And David Cameron took the other kind of expertise line. He said, we've created this National Security Council, and I have a National Security Advisor. And actually, I'm sort of trying to put all my eggs in that basket. What we want are more people with that kind of knowledge and who are able to stand up to power and be robust. But my reading of, I must repeat, I haven't read it, my reading of what I've read about it suggests it's the other kind of expertise that was missing. I mean, these people, the, the, the people running MI5, MI6, John Scarlett and others, there was that kind of expertise there. What was missing were the people who were able to say, we know how politics goes wrong. We know how decision-making process, we know about groupthink. We know, about, and that's what parliament is for. Yeah. Let me take those two in turn, because I think there's slightly Sorry, different that was a very long that, question. That, that, that come out of those two. <laughs> one is the regional expertise. And, and one thing that, that the Chilcot report does bring out is the extent to which this knowledge of the region is there. It's given to Mr. Blair, it's given in documents and, and um, seminars, which Mr. Blair attends, um, in which the, the dangers, the problems, some of the more complex political issues within Iraq are discussed and the prospects for Iraq within the context of a, a post-Saddam government are laid out. What's striking is the limited follow-through. There are those discussions, it's well known, it, these issues have become part of the, the ways in which people are talking about um, the problems. It goes in some of the formal statements that Blair makes, but actually in terms of decision-making approaches um, towards setting up institutions and setting up mechanisms through which Iraq can be governed after 2003, there is very little. But that is partly because of the reliance upon the US in that sense. There is the sense that there is someone within the US who is thinking seriously about this, and we can influence them, but we don't have to actually take the lead in this sphere. And that, in a way, is another reason why thinking in terms of influence is such a mistake, because it's also an abdication. both an assumption of responsibility and an abdication of responsibility. It, absolutely. And that, that abnegation, that second part of it, is, is clearly a focus in, in what's going on in the Chilcot approach to trying to understand this. It's understanding both the extent to which influence is sought, but also the extent to which influence is put in such a vague way that it doesn't actually lead to any particular assumption of responsibility within this context. The second point you make, David, is, is, is perhaps more interesting in the Chilcot context. The report puts its primary emphasis upon political expertise within the cabinet. The report lists at one point 11 different occasions on which Mr Blair should have made a statement or invited discussion at cabinet and particularly is concerned with the ways in which those who don't, don't have a departmental stake can be invited to give their views upon the situation. He brings out the notion of groupthink in the report a few times. He mentions that as a problem in situations where there are only those who have a strong individual involvement within an issue are brought into discussions. And he, he, he identifies that as a problem. I actually wrote a piece in 2003 about why groupthink wasn't the problem in, in the British system. Maybe I should revisit that article now um, in light of what 
what the Shulkot report says. But he does actually do it in those terms in the report itself. And he actually identifies the ways in which ministers who don't have departmental responsibilities that are concerned with the issue at stake can have an important role in questioning many of the assumptions which are there, which are there throughout the whole discussion in 2002 and 2003. Exactly, because you could take a perspective and say, what, what does the Minister for Agriculture possibly have to contribute to a discussion about the Iraq war? To which the answer is, that person does not have a stake in it. That person is coming to it fresh. And and we we do know, I think we, we do know broadly in democratic politics that so much of what's valuable about it is that it allows input from people who ostensibly don't know the issue. I mean, that's why we have general elections. Um, because when people have a stake in an issue, it's incredibly hard to look at it dispassionately. Indeed. And you bring that point out in... Ken Clark made the point about Parliament also having a similar role in that respect. That isn't touched upon to any real extent with the with the Chilcot report, but the point is is as valid in that context as it is for for the cabinet discussion in the report itself. Interestingly, and this is um, the point that you refer to in terms of how the parliamentary vote, if it had gone against Blair, would have resulted in him resigning. What's interesting in the report is the ways in which the consequences of a negative vote aren't discussed. This is similar to Brexit in some ways. What would have happened if Parliament had voted against the prospect of an invasion in, in March 2003? There isn't a plan in place for that circumstance. So, so you're saying the, the British government itself didn't have... A contingency. A contingency. I mean, the, the government would almost certainly have fallen. Yeah. And then the thing would have just played out as it played out, but they weren't willing to plan for a reverse in, in the Commons. Indeed, indeed. So there is no moment at which they ask, say, for example, the US, you know, how will you cope without us if we don't actually have a vote in favour of the invasion? Will you go ahead or won't you go ahead? What will you do in running these southern provinces that we've been allocated as our responsibility in the aftermath of an invasion? What will you do diplomatically? There isn't that discussion with, with other players about the, the possible consequences of a negative vote. It just isn't foreseen. And, and conceivably, one could have imagined it happening. One could have imagined a negative vote. Yeah, I mean, it would, and it wouldn't have had, the vote wouldn't have had to be defeated. There was a sense that if more than half the Parliamentary Labour Party had voted against, yeah. uh, and it was, it, was, it was within, yeah, 10 or 20 votes of that. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that Blair said in his response yesterday he criticises the Chilcot report for not considering the counterfactual. So there's one counterfactual. But the one that Blair wants us to focus on, and he has been saying this for years, is he wants us to think about a world in which Saddam Hussein was still in place. Now, in his response, Tony Blair makes some fairly robust claims about the condition of Iraq. And I really want to know what you think about this, because you do know about this. The condition of Iraq prior to the Arab Spring. So Blair says that in 2009, 2010, after the surge, I mean, he had Blair accepts that the post-war period was a disaster. But after the surge, Iraq had stabilized, that there was a successful, safe election, that al-Qaeda in Iraq had more or less been dismantled. And then the Arab Spring came, and everything that follows from that, particularly in Syria. One of the things he wants us to consider is, what would the world be like if the Arab Spring had arrived and Saddam had still been in place? I mean, it seems to me there are a lot of ifs in this anyway, but it is a real question. And he wants us to think that it, that basically Iraq would now be Syria. Is there anything in that? There are a number of assumptions in what Mr. Blair said at that point, which I think complicate the picture inevitably. I mean, there are many countries in the Middle East in which there wasn't a, a mass uprising after 
after 2011, after doing the Arab uprisings, Algeria doesn't have an uprising of any sort against the fairly authoritarian government there. Similarly, there are many countries in the Gulf region which don't experience problems. So one can, one can make an argument that in Iraq they may not have been, as it were, an uprising. But I think the more problematic assumption, the most problematic assumption in what Mr. Blair says, is the ways in which he sees the conflict in Syria developing purely as an isolated case. It's the people revolting against an authoritarian government leading to, to a conflict. When so much of the story of Syria since 2011 has been about the cross-border involvement of the Iraqi groups who emerge in the context of the post-2003 disorder, who then move across the border into Syria and who take over control of Raqqa in the north, in the northeast of the country. And around that fulcrum, around that fulcrum between Western Iraq and Eastern Syria is a crucial part of understanding why the Syrian conflict has gone the way that it has over the past five years. So one can't think about sort of Syria as a conflict that occurs in isolation from what had happened in Iraq previously. I mean, the group that controls the self-styled Islamic State group I mean, is essentially a, a group that was created in Iraq. It was created in, in Western Iraq over the course of the period after 2003. So uh, the two stories are interlinked in a way that the assumption that Mr. Blair is making problematizes. So, so in that sense, at least, it's very difficult to to talk about another Syria happening if Saddam had stayed in power, because the fall of Saddam is very much part of the story of what's happened in Syria since 2011. More particularly in that respect, the heightened sectarian conflict within the Middle East, Iraq forms a necessary part of that story as well. I think there's no way to avoid the extent to which the conflict as it developed in Iraq between Sunni and Shia polarised um, populations across the Middle East. It made people identify across the Middle East on sectarian lines because it was the lead story across the Arab world for 10 years. It was the story that headlined every night on Arab news stations. And whether you lined up with the with the Shia parties or whether you lined up with the Sunni parties became an essential part of the politics of the region from, from North Africa all the way through to the, the Horn of Oman. And on the specific claim that he makes that he thinks that people see the post post-Iraq war period as simply a tale of catastrophe for Iraq itself. It reminds me a bit about how people sometimes talk about Weimar. They want people to remember that Weimar wasn't just all this disaster that resulted in Hitler coming to power, that there was a, a point where it was stabilising and then the Great Depression happened. So prior to 1929 in Weimar, this fragile democratic state looked like it was actually starting to have elections that made sense and then an external event happened and the whole thing went wrong. Is he right that in 2010, Iraq was on the road to something recognisably both stable and democratic. So one thing that the Chilcot report doesn't do, and I, I and I'm asking I, you this, yeah, yeah no, but, indeed, yeah. indeed, but but just just to just to take it through the, the line of Chilcot, it looks at British involvement in southern Iraq without really looking in detail at what the effect of Iraqi politics is of the British involvement in southern Iraq. And here the two stories do intertwine, because one thing that's happening in the later stages of British involvement is that they're supporting the government of Nouri al-Maliki, then Prime Minister of Iraq in asserting a more authoritative role, overriding local polit political leaders, overriding local governments in southern Iraq in, in the attempt to reassert order. So what you're seeing over the course of the second half of that decade, especially in that period from 2007 through to 2010, is the reassertion of a fairly vigorously assertive national government in local politics. 
and the British are helping in that situation in southern Iraq in the belief that this will lead to greater stability and security for the Iraqi population. It turns into an increasingly sectarian and increasingly unpopular government in so doing. It's using sectarian rhetoric, it's using in some cases sectarian militia in order to assert its national presence in, within local settings. So what you're seeing over that period is not necessarily a, a benignly stable setting, but a setting within which the national government in Iraq is trying to overextend itself through the use of forces that end up becoming the point of controversy in the post-2010 period. And that's, that's coming back to the story of sectarianism. So to call it particularly a form of democratic stability would be to mislabel it? It would be to miss the point of what the real transition is that's happening at that point, which is not so much about politics in a vacuum, but the politics of a of an increasingly authoritarian state within Iraq over that period, which is part of how at least the British and the Americans are thinking about renewed stability, but are reverting to models that are not suited to where Iraq stands in terms of the mobilisation of popular opinion in that context in which authoritarian government is being rejected by by very large amounts of the population at that point and are mobilising against it in ways that are leading towards a renewal of hostilities. That's incredibly helpful. I'm already a lot better informed than I was half an hour ago. I want to finish then. Um, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but it does clearly intersect with what's going on in British politics at the moment. Just to go back to what we were talking about before, I think there's no question that in the EU referendum, some of the arguments about the British people having had enough of experts don't just go back to what people discovered after the financial crash, what they were told before and what they were told after. But it does some of it does go back to the Iraq war. It does go back to a sense that there was a marked contrast between the official line and then what people, particularly the people who protested in, not their millions, but one and a half to two million people, felt was the truth. And the, the people turned out to be much closer to the truth than the experts in some respects. I mean, you're, you're shaking your head a bit, but I mean, certainly in that contest... And Jeremy Corbyn said yesterday, and I find it hard to disagree with this, that the the people who protested against the war are in some senses vindicated by what's in this report, not in any detailed sense, but in relation to what you were talking about before, that the way that the decision makers thought often missed the real issue, and that ordinary people reflecting on it perhaps only a little or only reflecting on it instinctively got something that the experts missed they didn't know anything about Iraq but they got something about what might be going wrong with the decision making process so on that I think Corbyn has a point Mm. where I'm less persuaded uh, by him is that he seemed to think and I have no idea if this is why he's been clinging on in office having lost the confidence of the parliamentary party but he seemed to think it was important that he should be the one to apologize on behalf of the Labour Party for this war Whereas I feel, well, an apology coming from him is more or less meaningless because we know exactly what he thinks. I mean, he's, he thinks it's a war crime and he sh- Corbyn should have quit and let Hillary Benn apologise and then it would have meant something. I mean, actually an apology coming from someone who is not a lifelong opponent and everything to do with this way of thinking would have more weight. I think that Corbyn's apology actually has just got lost in the wash because it's just what he would say anyway. I mean, Corbyn would have said that regardless of what was in this report. Yes, I do wonder what political purchase apologies have at this stage. And it could be just part of domestic positioning within the party in that context. Um, he apologises, he's wondering if anybody else will apologise as well. Um, maybe maybe that's what's going on. 
within British politics, I mean, the, the Iraq war leaves that... I mean, one shouldn't overstate it. There were many reasons for limited popular trust in politics, but Iraq obviously plays a role within that process. And so that's why many of us, going back to an earlier theme, were wondering what Chilcot would have to say about how that trust can be re-established. And I'm afraid there aren't answers in Chilcot. There is, there is no fix for how we can go about redesigning our politics in such a way that there will be there will be renewed popular belief in the integrity of politics but that's because there is no easy answer to those questions and there is no way in which a report can set out a, a program for restoring this level of trust and iraq in that sense if we're looking to the iraq episode to provide us with answers we're looking in the wrong place i fear Indeed, and if John Chilcott knew the answer to that question, then seven years would have been a short period. I mean, he, he, he can take as long as he wants if he can tell us the answer to that one. That, in a way, is the, it's the holy grail of contemporary democratic politics. And I think this report is really interesting. What you've said is really interesting in that context. But yeah, it's more questions than it is answers. Yes. Glenn, thank you very much reading the Chilcott report for the rest of us so that we can all be much better informed. If you'd like to find out a bit more about what Glenn thinks about this. He's writing a piece for the Times Higher that will be out next week. If you want to see some of the things that Glenn has written in the past, and he's written books as well as articles on this, just look up Glenn Rangwala. There is lots there. As I seem to say at the end of every one of these little specials that we do, there's no sign that politics is getting less interesting at the moment. So do please carry on subscribing, tuning in to what we have to say. We'll be back over the summer and we'll be back full time in the autumn. Until then, my name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast Election. That was great, Ben. That was really good. I really did learn a lot from that. <laughs> did you edit this before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.